my guest today uh, was originally booked for a month ago, and and for various reasons we couldn't we, we couldn't actually arrange the interview that day, and I was very disappointed because I thought, well, this is this is a, 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 an area we really want to get into. It's, it's all about banking and and the significance of money and how money is created and what money is and what money isn't. Um, and in the last month, what a lot has happened. And all of these issues have come very much to the fore. So it's actually transpired that it was, it was, it was quite fortuitous that this has been put back so we can discuss everything that's happened in the banking industry over the last couple of weeks. So it's, my guest today is Alistair McLeod of Gold Money. He's chief researcher at Gold Money. And uh, he's, he's got a, a, a long, a long uh, um, and, and prestigious career in banking and stockbroking and uh, in the financial sector. And he knows this as an insider. Alistair, welcome. That's very much my pleasure, David. I'd like to, I'd like to start with, with recent events. And we'll go into background issues after, after that. But we, the first sign that something was happening was, was Silvergate Bank, which went on, on March the 8th. Can you say maybe just a few words about that as, as an opening salvo to what's happened in the last, uh, the last week or so? Yeah, not just Silvergate, but also Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank. Um, the common theme there is that these banks were all really in the tech industry. So there's a sort of story which hasn't really been told about the crypto side of this. Um, but, you know, that's probably, you know, not all that important. Um, I think that what was fascinating about it was really what happened to uh, Silicon Valley Bank because it had something like 120 billion of its assets in, um, uh, in bonds, invested in U.S. Treasuries and agency bonds, of which I think something like 90 billion uh, was um, uh, technically held till maturity, which basically means it didn't need to be under accounting rules um, uh, marked to market. And um, what it did was uh, it acquired these bonds. I mean, you know, you would say that this was the safest investment, the safest deployment of the asset side of a bank's balance sheet that they could possibly do. Um, it acquired these bonds at a time when interest rates were at the zero bound. And um, by going out along the yield curve, uh, which was positive at that time, you would pick up um, what appeared to be a reasonable yield, particularly when you geared it through your balance sheet. Uh, and um, this was, at the time, giving uh, uh, Silicon Valley Bank a pretty good return on its equity. But then um, the... Uh, unexpected happened, and that is that the Fed started raising interest rates so that the yield curve went inverted. And this, this has two effects. The first is that uh, the cost of funding um, uh, an investment position uh, starts rising, so and it rises above the dividend yield of uh, your investments. And so you have got a loss on your P&L account. And the second problem is that um, even though it is concealed by being held to maturity, the losses on these bonds start mounting because obviously the yield on the bond rises means that the price of the bond falls. 
And um, when Silicon Valley Bank um, tried to address this problem, I mean, it was beginning to have some, you know, stories were going around and the people in the know were beginning to get out and so on. So it thought it would try and recapitalize itself, uh, try and raise some money. And um, of course, that just rang the alarm bells and that was the end of it. The thing that's interesting in this, David, is the question, um, and that is, Given that this is you know, what Silicon Valley Bank did is actually not confined to a few tech banks in <laughs> in California. It's actually pretty common around the world because all banks have had the same problem. They have had a very low cost of funding. They have had um, perhaps not enough uh, loan business in the real economy. So they have become completely absorbed into the financial economy as opposed to the non-financial economy and uh, they've ended up with huge amounts of bonds on their on their on their um, uh, balance sheets and worse than that instead of doing what banks traditionally did with bonds you know when things were sort of quiet and you decided that what you wanted to do was actually not lend money into the real economy but to hold government bonds it would be uh, bonds typically of less than a year maturity or at very very most five years maturity. That's the most a bank would go out to. What we saw with, with um, uh, um, uh, Silicon Valley Bank is that they actually went far longer than that. And um, you've got, therefore, potentially huge losses all around the world in banks which have done the same thing, because all the yield curves, whether you're looking at, well, with the exception of Japan, I suppose, but certainly when you're looking at Europe, when you're looking at the UK, um, the, the yield curves have inverted. And so the conditions have changed, creating losses in ex for banks in other jurisdictions in exactly the same way that, uh, that uh, SLB suffered. That's a very interesting point. After the last banking crisis, or maybe the first part of this banking crisis, 2007, 2008, um, there was uh, obviously huge problems all across the economy um, resulting from the positions the banks have taken, uh, particularly with regards to uh, mortgage-backed securities. Um, and a lot of banks were in trouble. Um, I was, I'm in construction, so I was also in trouble. And I was, I was treated very poorly by my bank. And I decided we're, we're not, going to, not going to be with them anymore. But I come from a little town called Airdrie, and Airdrie had the last independent bank, independent savings bank in Britain called the Airtree Savings Bank. And this had, I think, four or five branches round about Lanarkshire. And uh, so I was looking at moving to them. And I, I did eventually move my, move my business to them. Um, and as I looked at them, I was astonished at how conservative they were. When all these risks were being taken, here was this bank and it had basically money on deposit with the Bank of England and it had guilt. And it had a, a, a pretty modest loan book which was um, uh, managed well and they knew the customers and they didn't take many risks. And so you had this old-fashioned bank. Now, this, this I found this charming and, and it, it, it evoked lots of memories because as a small boy, I used to go in with a jar of Thrutney bits, I'm old enough to remember brass Thrutney bits, to put them in my bank account because my parents were teaching me to save and be, be sensible. And I went into this bank, and it's a big banking hall, 
and it had huge portraits on the wall of, of people in, in military uniforms. And it was the whole thing was kind of impressive. And there was a there was an uh there was a kind of hushed, concentrated silence in the banking hall. And it was kind of dramatic and it was very old-fashioned. That bank no longer exists. It didn't go out of business because it wasn't profitable. It went out of business because the regulatory environments for banks are so con uh, convoluted and complex and expensive. It couldn't compete in that market. And basically, small banks can no longer exist in the UK. And I mourn its passing because it was a lovely little institution. But to go from that position where guilt, government debt, etc., was the last word in safety to the point where they're now blowing up banks in America, that same asset class, is a remarkable shift. Um, now, the, the next thing I'd like to I like you to delve into is is what the response has been, the regulators' response, the Treasury Department, Bank of England, and Fed, because the it's it's been it's been somewhat of a movable feast. So you know, Janet Yellen came out and she said, "We're going to bail out this bank, um, and it's, it's to two hundred and fifty thousand dollars deposits." And then they realised that was only a few percent of the total deposits, and it was going to cause huge problems. And then Yellen and or Biden came out and said, no, no, we're bailing everything out. They see the $250,000 limit that's in legislation, that's, that's the law. Yeah, we're going to ignore that and we're going to bail everyone out apart from, um, a, a, apart from the holders of equity. The people who actually own the banks, they, they're, they're not going to get anything. But all of the depositors are going to be made whole. And then Janet Yellen was saying, but we're only going to do this for some banks um, if they're important. And then she realised that undermined the position of all the banks not deemed to be systemically important. And then she kind of backtracked on that and I, I, I kind of suggested that they would bail out everything without limit. Now, I'm not actually clear what the policy is. Um, <laughs> are you and what do you make of it? Well, I mean, there's so much in there. I mean, the first thing I would like to say, uh, you know, apropos your story about uh, the bank in Airdrie, is that the great benefit of local banks is that local banks understand local business, they understand local borrowers, and they can make a proper credit assessment. That disappears when small banks are shut down. And it is a great tragedy that banking has been encouraged by the regulators, as you quite rightly say, to um, consolidate and merge into larger and larger units. Um, and that is a large source of the problems we face today. Um, as to your point about, um, uh, you know, what, uh, you know, the authorities have said and, you know, the flip-flopping and all the rest of it. I mean, the problem, the problem with Credit is it, it. It depends totally on confidence, and um, this is true of bank credit. Is also true of central bank credit. But with respect to commercial bank credit, um, the problem is that as soon as you begin to worry that there are problems in the system, uh, then anything that uh, is said by the authorities is taken uh, negatively. And so, actually, the best thing to do is to say as little as possible. And I'm afraid that um, it's been what, um, I mean, the, the, the last uh, 
cyclical bank crisis was uh, the Lehman crisis. That was in 2008, running into 2009. And the people uh, at the top of the US Treasury and uh, even in the central banks today have actually forgotten the lessons uh, of that time. Uh, and um, of course, the other thing is that, you know, if you're a politician, you're really, which is really now what uh, Janet Yellen is, um, you're probably uh, placing a greater emphasis on moral hazard than uh, the practicality of um, supervising a banking system, a commercial banking system. The, the problem uh, really is that a modern central bank has uh, a primary duty to ensure that all depositors in the commercial banking system are protected. And of course, the protection that is officially in place, which is, you know, in, in, in the UK, we're talking about the first 85,000 pounds of a deposit. Um, in the US, it's quarter of a million with the FDIC. Um, there are not sufficient funds uh, in these uh, insurance schemes to protect all depositors. The only thing that a, a central bank can do in managing um, central bank and the regulator in managing its uh, commercial banking network is to ensure the complete integrity of the system. It cannot allow any failure of um, a bank uh, because all that does is it alerts people to the potential for failures in other banks. And then you've got something that can rapidly escalate out of control. So. We have, um, I mean, we, 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 we went down the rabbit hole of trying to look at bail-ins to save the taxpayer. I mean, this, you know, that was a load of rubbish. I mean, it really was. The taxpayer ends up paying, if you want to put it in those terms, whichever way you do it. Um, but what it did in the case of, CA, uh, of, of Credit Suisse was it uh, created a confusion because um, there was a partial bail-in in that the, um, uh, uh, you know, sort of, um, Coco says, well, the Credit Suisse had um, uh, something like, I think it was 17 uh, billion uh, Swiss francs of, um, of bonds, which um, they just literally bailed in. They said, right, that's it. You, you know, you get nothing. Meanwhile, of course, shareholders were getting something. And it was so this was turning company law on its head. Uh, and uh, the consequence of that is, uh, you know, has been that very quickly the the uh, markets responded by marking down uh, bank debt very severely, and it forced the uh, regulators in um, both uh, the eurozone and the euro system and also the UK to turn around and condemn uh, the Swiss National Bank's actions on this. Uh, so, in order to stabilise the market, but I think that particular um, cat is let out of the bag. And I can see that the, um, uh, the, the big insurance companies and pension funds um, around Europe will be looking at their uh, Swiss franc investments uh, and think, well, you know, how are, we, how are we going to actually sort of rate this? I mean, they've shown that they're prepared to write off bonds. Um, is this something we should continue to own? So, you know, this bail-in thing actually um, has been a com the completely wrong way to go if you're going to preserve the um, the banking system. And uh, I think, fortunately, um, you know, the, the Swiss National Bank's problem over Credit Suisse was relatively minor in the big scheme of things uh, because we, you know, Credit Suisse is um, 
a global systemically important bank. It's one of uh, 29, in fact, they're total 30. There's a, one that isn't listed, a French one. Uh, call it 29 global systemically important banks. If any of those other ones go, uh, then uh, you've got real problems. So the great thing is that with Credit Suisse, uh, they have managed, if you like, to make the mistake to ensure that nobody else makes that mistake. Uh, so that is the positive that I would see out of it. But what I, uh, I fear is that the problems that uh, Credit Suisse faced are still being faced by the other global systemically important banks. And that is um, something which I'm sure we can dig into. Um, because there are aspects which are not included in the balance sheets, but um, in a systemic uh, crisis suddenly will be a major, major consideration. Yeah, I'd like to get to that. Just before we do, I just want to dig a little bit more into the, into the bailout of um, Silicon Valley Bank's depositors um, and, and the bailouts, the, the stabilisation, apparently, of the rest of the United States banking system uh, by actions from the Fed. And the, the Fed basically, <laughs> over a weekend, and it always seems to happen over a weekend, they, they went into a presumably smoke-filled room somewhere and, and worked out an, an emergency response to entirely change the relationship between the Fed and the commercial banks um, to to save the entire system. So this is this is crisis management, right? They're trying to pre pretend everything's fine because it depends on confidence. But this is this is simple crisis management at the moment, as far as I can see. I'd like to comment on that. But also the thing they actually did is they said, well, you've got all these things, you've got all these government bonds, mortgage-backed securities, right? That are that are worth 80, 80, 60 pence on the pound. Right? They're, they're devalued debt. If you mark them to market, they're not worth anything like the face value. We'll take those onto our, our, our balance sheet temporarily for a year, and we will lend you um, the full amount in, in liquid cash based on that asset. So you've got an asset that's worth 60p. We will, we will hold that asset, and we'll pretend it's worth a pound, and we'll give you a pound. Now, this is this this is puzzling me. There's a couple of questions, right? One, what stops people under those circumstances going out and hoovering up as much 60p valued debt as possible to shove it into the Federal Reserve and borrow a pound on it? Because that sounds like a good deal. Um, and secondly, whether they do that or not, how how do they ever return the system to, to stasis? How did they ever end that? Because a year from now, does the Fed say to all these banks, right, anti up lads, we need the money. I'm going to give you back this debt, which is worth 60 cents in the dollar. I want a dollar for it. Does that not simply put the point at which all the banks are in crisis one year further down the road? When we get to that, will they simply kick the can? In other words, have they actually simply taken all of this low quality debt, put it on the Fed's balance sheet at a false price, expanded the balance sheet enormously, and gone back to a form of money printing, quantitative easing, just under another name. Is that what we're looking at? 
Well, basically, yes. I mean, it's, it's, what you're referring to is what the Fed calls its new bank term funding uh, program. And uh, as you rightly point out, um, it allows a bank which has um, government and agency and not limited to that uh, debt on its balance sheet, uh, which it can submit as collateral to the Fed on the basis of its face value um, in return for cash on a one-year loan. Um, and the two questions you raised are ab absolutely correct. Um, is there anything to stop someone, you know, a bank, it has to be a bank, incidentally, uh, because you have to have an account at the Fed. Um, is there anything to stop a bank uh, going into the market, buying um, a deeply discounted bond <laughs> and submitting it as collateral at face value uh, in return for cash? No, there is nothing to stop them doing that. Um, and uh, the second question you asked is, uh, you know, this is a one-year um, facility. Um, you know, how does it get reversed or how does it get stopped? Well, the answer is it, it won't get stopped uh, because what is it? I mean, it, this basically is uh, a hidden form of quantitative easing, if you like. Uh, from the Fed's point of view, there are two advantages in pursuing this route. The first is that it stabilizes the balance sheets of banks which have got into the um, uh, Silicon Valley bank problem, uh, which I'm sure is common all around the regional banks in, in, in the States. Um, and uh, the second thing is that uh, they realize they can no longer control interest rates. I mean, we had a, a quarter point increase, or we're having a quarter point increase, more or less as we're speaking um there may or may not be another one basically they've lost control over interest rates um but one thing they can control or they think that they can control is uh the level of um bond yields along the yield curve now it is obviously to um the government's advantage uh the federal government's advantage uh if these yields are suppressed as much as possible and by going into the market um, as a banker and buying the existing bonds and um, submitting them to the uh, uh, to the Fed, what I'm doing is I am driving down the yields of those bonds. In other words, you know, I'm, okay, I'm pushing up the price because there's demand, but it is actually also driving down the yield. Now, the assumption behind all this is that inflation is still transient. Because um, what the Fed must be assuming is that at the end of one year, um, there would be good progress on reducing the rate of inflation. And the prospect of it returning to 2% is very, very clear. Now, there's a lot of fallacies in this. Um, and it's, it's, um, it really is an enormous gamble by the Fed. But you've got to think, what the hell else can they do? Um, you know, they have got to come up with a solution which stabilizes the banking system, one, and guarantees uh, government funding. When if you look at the geopolitics, you can see the foreigners are not stepping up to the plate anymore, um, you know, buying treasuries with with the dollars which they have earned from from uh, their exports to America. So all in all, this is a neat and tidy um, solution for a short-term problem. But at the end of that year, I have absolutely no doubt that um, they will need to extend it. Now, the reason is because 
This is the equivalent, if you like, of hidden QE. The reversal of it is quantitative tightening. And every time the Fed has tried to uh, quantitative tighten, it's threatened to burst the credit bubble. It cannot do it again. So I think there will come a point where bankers begin to realize that this facility is effectively a perpetual loan. So, you know, forget the one year bit. And not only that, but you're taking this stuff off your balance sheet, um, you know, which is brilliant. And, uh, you know, you can account for it absolutely legitimately as uh, at full value. Because that's what the Fed says. And, uh, uh, you know, it will probably be returned if it is ever returned at full value. So, yeah, this is this is a very neat solution from the point of view of the bureaucrats um, uh, running monetary policy. But I can tell you it's destructive of the currency because what we're seeing is the expansion of credit at the central bank level, which will undermine confidence in central bank issued currencies. You packed a lot into that. Let me just try and unpick a few bits of it. When you say uh, bond, bond yields are, are going to go down and the, and the state favours this, the government favours this, this is because obviously government debt and the interest payments on that government debt is becoming a big problem. We covered this uh, on, on uh, UK Column News in the last few days, pointing out that on the last figures we had, um, the United States uh, interest payments, gov government interest payments on their debt were shooting up and they were passing 800 billion, heading towards a trillion um, as of the end of December. And this is about 26% of total uh, United States government revenue. And it was heading north at a rate of knots. So it's quite, re it's quite reasonable if that wasn't corrected that it would hit a third or a half of all United States government revenues would just be going on interest payments, at which point the whole credibility of the credit worthiness of the government starts to come and starts to be called into question. Um, and this, the other thing you said, which takes us to the very core of this, and this is where I think the biggest lesson from what happened over um, Silicon Valley Bank uh, is to be taken, is ultimately the Fed has a choice the central bankers, because they're all working in a coordinated fashion to at least some extent, the central bankers have a choice. They protect the financial system, they protect the banks, they protect financial assets, or they protect the value of the currency. And the whole purpose of increasing interest rates was to, was to squeeze out inflation, that was the stated aim, to protect the value of the dollar. Very quickly, they broke something, as many of us, particularly including yourself, predicted. They, they, they broke something because the entire asset bubble or series of asset bubbles was dependent on this cheap money. And when the cheap money was no longer there, the prices couldn't be maintained. And then the dislocation started to cause problems, this case in the banks. And things started to break, just in the repo crisis 2019 when they were tightening and the same thing happened. So things started to break, they had a choice and they chose to save the banking system and they chose not to save the dollar. This is, I think, effectively what's been termed a pivot. This is the Fed changing their, 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 their direction from 
we are going to raise interest rates, we're going to be aggressive, we're going to be like Paul Volcker in the 1970s, we're going to squeeze out inflation. Trust us, we are hard men, we won't flinch to, no, we've just flinched, we're now going to save the banks, don't worry about anything, we're just going to print some more money, we're just going to call it something different, because we always do. Um, this is a pivot. Do, do you agree that we've actually seen the critical decision point? Uh, yeah, uh, but, but what's interesting in this is that the pivot was expected to be uh, on interest rate policy. Um, and, uh, you know, at some stage they'd have to, um, you know, start reducing interest rates to save the system. But actually it's a hidden pivot because they're not reducing interest rates. They're just letting the interest rate situation fester on one side. Um, but what they're doing is they're manipulating bond prices now. And this is this is actually what it's all about. So it is a hidden pivot. Uh, and uh, um, I can see other jurisdictions doing exactly the same thing. I would have thought that, um, you know, we'll, we'll see it in the, in the UK. Um, that's extremely likely in my view. Uh, and we'll also see it around, um, around, around the Euro system. Um, Japan uh, is in a slightly different situation because um, they've never raised interest rates at all. Uh, they've already been suppressing bond yields. Uh, and, um, you know, the, it was sort of that the yield on the 10-year JGB was threatening to break above half of 1%, would you believe? And I think I'm right in saying that if you look at the uh, yields in the uh, JGB market, um, you know, up to two years, uh, maturity is still negative. So, uh, you know, they've actually, the, the Japanese central bank has already sat on this uh, problem very, very hard. And that's the direction, I think, in which the other central banks are going to go. They're not going to talk about uh, interest rates so much. They will still, you know, sort of theorize that, um, uh, you know, interest rates, are, you know, are due to go up another quarter percent or whatever it is, um, but actually, it's pretty meaningless stuff. It really is. I mean, look at the UK. We had, what, 10.4% um, uh, uh, increase in the CPI. Uh, this was reported yesterday, I think. I, can't, I didn't really notice too much because I don't, I don't really hold much for government statistics. But I think I'm right in saying that the retail price index is up over 15%. And what are our interest rates here? What is the Bank of England doing about interest rates? I mean, clearly that they have kept them down, but they no longer control them. And the whole basis of this now is a bet. And it's, it's putting everything on this bet. And that is that it's, it's inflation problem is um, uh, temporary. Um, it's transient. And we're going to return to the 2% level as if nothing had ever happened. It's just going to take a little bit longer. Yeah. You know, <laughs> This is David. This is nonsense. It is complete nonsense. But that's where we are, and um, I'd like to, you know, make a, a further point. Um, we had the same situation in in France in 1720 when um, a fellow countryman of, uh, of of you and I uh, went out and managed to persuade the Duke of Orleans uh, that he had a scheme to. Um, pay off the king's debts and the sun king, obviously building Versailles and having wars and all the rest of it, got himself into financial difficulties. That needed addressing. So um, the Duke of Orleans, who is the uh, regent for the um, uh, uh, underage uh, new King Louis, um, you know, just grasped the opportunity. 
And basically, um, uh, John Law was uh, promoting um, proto-Keynesian ideas about um, uh, credit uh, driving the economy. And um, he got this bubble going. Um, it all happened a lot more rapidly than our bubble. I mean, we've been, you know, doing this sort of uh, uh, fiat currency thing since 1971. Um, but uh, he started off, I think, in about 1716, really, when he sort of finally managed to get the Duke of Orleans to give him a banking license, which then became from the Banque Générale to uh, Banque Royale. In other words, it became the equivalent of the Bank of England at that time, if you like. Um, and, uh, you know, the bubble um, was promoted, which um, was basically what we've been doing. We've been produce, promoting a, an enormous financial bubble but instead of being confined to one country like France, this is now global. And what happened then? Well, um, uh, there's a guy called uh, Richard Cantillon, who is a banker, and he, he was a very shrewd individual, um, Irish-French banker. Uh, and um, uh, lots of people wanted to speculate in, in, in uh, the Mississippi venture. Uh, and these are the same people speculating in the South Sea bubble in, in London. Uh, and... Uh, uh, Cantillon as banker created the credit to lend them the money to go into the market and buy these shares, which he had as collateral, which he immediately sold, incidentally, because he, you know, he could see through this scheme. Now, um, he was selling this stuff at, at significantly lower prices than um, uh, than this bubble got to, because the Mississippi venture went up to something like um, twelve thousand livres in February seventeen twenty before uh, the bear market set in. Now, um, having uh, basically sold all the collateral uh, against the loans that he had created, what Cantillon then did was he played it on the foreign exchanges. He realized that the way to play this was the currency was going to collapse. So he went into the foreign exchanges in, in London and Amsterdam, which were the big foreign exchange centers uh, in, in, you know, in the early 18th century, and basically sold short um, uh, John Law's lever on the market. Uh, by September, um, there was still some value in the, um, in the Mississippi venture. Um, the price had fallen to something like 4,000 livres, something like that. But the lever was valueless. There was no quotation on any of the exchanges uh, outside France. So you could see that what happened was that John Law's um, proto-Keynesian um, uh, credit creation uh, as a means of uh, developing economic activity, as a means of developing revenue for the state and all the rest of it, um, uh, destroyed the currency. And what are we doing now? We're doing exactly the same thing. We're, you know, and you can, you can see which way this is going. It is absolutely clear. Now, uh, Cantillon cleaned up on, on that big time. And then, of course, um, uh, he, the people who owed him money, he, he then started chasing them as well. And uh, he had to go through the courts. And the interesting thing about going through the courts was that he won every case simply uh, because uh, the debt existed uh, and it could not be denied. And, um, you know, the defense very often was that, well, he had already sold the the um, stock into the into, into the market. 
But the problem was that it was bearer stock, uh, not numbered, not share numbered or anything like that. And consequently, nobody could actually identify whether this bit of stock or that bit of stock was actually theirs. So, you know, he, he, he cleaned up on that. He didn't make many friends, I can assure you, but he really did clean up on it. And he taught us, he taught us that the natural result of a state-induced credit bubble is to eventually destroy the currency. And I'm afraid that's the rust which we have got into today. Moving from that on to Switzerland, effects in Switzerland, Credit Suisse. Um, the, the, the aspect of this I'd, I'd, I'd like you to, to talk about in particular is the, is the relationship between the central banks and the government on one hand and the commercial banks. Because what we were told, oh, and also the tendency that when things get serious, the bankers have to lie. So what we were told on, I think, last Wednesday was Credit Suisse had a line of credit at uh, the Swiss National Bank of 50 billion Swiss francs. And this was going to be, this was going to sort out all the problems that this made them entirely liquid, don't you worry. Now, apart from the fact that that represents probably all the equity in the Swiss National Bank, right, which is one problem, it wasn't the whole story. The whole story only came out later. The call that went into Credit Suisse from the Swiss National Bank was, we're going to, we're going to announce this line of credit to get you to the weekend. Uh, but before the, the markets reopen, in the Far East on Monday morning, you will have sold your bank to UBS and it's non-negotiable. So the public statement by the Swiss National Bank is everything's fine. We've resolved the problem, everything's fine. The private statement was Credit Suisse, it's game over, you're finished, you're gone. Non-negotiable, you're gone and you're gone in the next five days or something, your history. Um, so, if, if you could maybe say a little bit about, A, the, the relative power of the central bank and the government relative to the commercial banks in this relationship, and also the tendency to not tell the public the truth. I mean, when it comes to governments not telling the public the truth, um, I think one has to understand that what governments say is very much the message that they want us to hear. And this isn't confined to, um, uh, you know, the relationships with banking and so on. It's, it's, it's the whole thing. Um, governments work that way. I mean, they all work on propaganda. So um, uh, they naturally, I mean, I think there was a wonderful phrase um, which came out in the Spycatcher tri trial. Uh, in in uh, Australia, where a, a senior British civil servant described the situation as being economical with the truth, and that has always stuck with me as the best description of really what governments do. They can't actually really lie, um, but um, you know they can uh, manipulate what we know, and that's that's. That's basically what they've been doing. Now, I can't sort of comment, uh, you know, uh, with any precision on what you say about the Credit Suisse situation, but there is no doubt 
that uh, the way the regulators think is that if there is a, if there is a problem which needs re uh, resolving, then it's something that is done over the weekend. So you need to manage a situation so that you get to a weekend. And I think that's essentially what you were uh, uh, alleging. And I think that's true. The UBS had, uh, didn't want to take over Credit Suisse. Um, the interesting thing is that at roughly 70 centimes, which I think was roughly the, the value um, which was struck over the weekend, but you know, being a share swap, it shifts. Um, that is something like a 94% um, discount uh, on uh, book value for the shares. I mean, that's massive. It really is massive. Um, but the other thing is that the GSIBs, all these GSIBs, with four exceptions, are all standing at discounts to uh, book value. And uh, in some cases, very, very substantial. I mean, if you look at the Eurozone, I think that the discounts to book value are well in excess of 50%. Same is true in um, uh, Japan, in the Japanese uh, GSIBs, which they're what, three or four. Um, Chinese ones are also similarly at a discount, though I would accept them from this problem because uh, their share prices are actually rising uh, amazingly while everybody else, all the other banks are falling. Um, America is not quite so bad, but if you look at the situation in America, um, I mean, there are two banks there which, which uh, are well, um, which exceed the the um, uh, book value in terms of their capitalization. Uh, and from memory, I think we're talking about JP Morgan and we're also talking about Morgan Stanley. Um, now that gives us sort of an average of around about, by my calculations, about 95, 96, 97% of book value across the whole of the US GSIBs. So um, I think as to the point about Credit Suisse, I don't think this problem is over quite yet, David. Um, we're likely to see other banks and i would i would point out that the real dangers are in the eurozone in particular possibly japan as well um we're going to have to see further uh, rescues i think if we can put it like that so there's this is not the last weekend where something happens um before markets open on monday morning alistair if if i could just before we go on to some other topics get you to define a couple of terms for anyone who's not familiar with it's a it's a world of acronyms when when, when we're in uh, uh, matters financial. Uh, GSIB, if you could just define first GSIB. Yes, of course. Uh, a GSIB is a global systemically important bank, and um, uh, that was set up in the wake of the Lehman crisis, um, and it came out of an emergency meeting of the G twenty, uh, which. Uh, got everybody to introduce bail-in legislation. I think Gordon Brown would claim to be one of the moving lights in that, you know, to save the taxpayer from the cost of rescuing uh, banks from um, greedy bankers and all the rest of it. Um, but the GSIB category was effectively set up uh, as part of the uh, Basel, the new Basel III regulations, uh, which were uh, developed really following that G20 meeting. And of course, there's, they're not fully implemented yet. There, there are aspects which still remain to be implemented, though the bulk of it is. Um, and that's what it is. And uh, they are um, the, the 29 largest banks around the world 
30, including one which isn't listed, but we're, 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 you know, I only sort of rarely think of them in terms of ones where they've got share listings and we can rate them and so on and so forth. Um, I think there are about seven or eight in the Eurozone. There are about seven or eight in America. There are a couple in Canada. There are four in China. Uh, we've got, uh, in the UK, we've got Standard Chartered. We've got uh, HSBC and Barclays. Um, Lloyds aren't in there because, I mean, one of the things about them, uh, the determining what a GSIB is, uh, is the international aspects of its business and therefore the um, counterparty relationships and the likelihood that such a bank could um, either spread or be on the receiving end of systemic issues, global systemic risk. That's really what, what, uh, what, what defines it. And of course, regional banks will rely, typically, I mean, if you look at America, a regional bank will have, uh, uh, rely on someone like JP Morgan or Morgan Stanley or Citi or uh, Bank of America or Wells Fargo, um, basically to do um, derivative deals, for example, on their behalf. So uh, you can see that because a regional bank is really concentrated on regional domestic um, American business, this is a totally different thing from a GSIB. And a GSIB is required to have an extra liquidity buffer uh, over and above um, a bank which is not a GSIB. And it is, it, it, it is because it is recognized that there is this is extra international risk which must not uh, be spread around the world. So that's what it is. And you've got everybody, um, you know, from, um, you know, the head of the ECB and all the rest of it saying that, well, their banks are now sound because they've got this extra buffer. Um, though, <laughs> quite frankly, they're so not. The, the, well, yeah, I mean, the way I, the way I was looking at this before the last couple of weeks, um, was that this was the this was the group of banks that that the international group of central banks had decided decided were too big to fail, and of course one of them, Credit Suisse, has now failed, and it's remarkable times we live in. You mentioned Basel III, and that that brings us to the Bank of International Settlements, and that I would like you to try and educate me a little bit about what this actually is, right? So the the, uh, there's a very good book written up about it called the, the Tower of Basel, um, and it, it records its history, starting off with essentially monitoring the uh, uh, reparations after the First World War from um, from Germany, and how it created a role for itself thereafter, and what that role's been. A lot of people view this organisation as um, well. It, it 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 there's a range, right? It, it, it goes from, well, it's the central bank, the central banker's central bank, that somehow it's going to generate the ultimate lender of last resort position on a global scale mm -hmm. to kind of some sort of proto-world government um, where you're talking about it's got diplomatic immunity, right? So it's, it's very obscure as to what actually goes on inside there. It used to be done in a very quiet way before they built the tower. It had a very uh, unimposing headquarters and everything was done quite quietly, but huge decisions were made in this organization, which didn't really seem to have 
a genuine purpose, but it existed all the same. What is the Bank of International Settlements? The Bank of International Settlements has become, I mean, originally it was, if you like, a neutral point. So in the Second World War, for example, the Nazis knew that um, they could leave gold uh, with the Bank of International Settlements and um, it wouldn't be stolen by the Allies. I mean, it was that neutral. But obviously things have changed and evolved, um, uh, not least uh, since everything went fiat in 1971. Uh, and what it has become really is a, a center for coordination of uh, central bank activities so that uh, there is a regular um, meeting which works under sort of, you know, completely confidential come Chatham House type rules whereby uh, central bank bankers or their senior representatives, I mean, if it's not the governor of the Bank of England, it's a deputy governor of the Bank of England, will attend these meetings, I think once every six weeks, and to discuss issues of the day with uh, their opposite numbers. It has also become uh, the centre for um, international cooperation on bank regulation, because uh, it's obviously recognised that as business as banking business has become more and more international, you do need to ensure that the risks of international business are, um, uh, you know, if you like, somehow controlled, which means that you've got to coordinate uh, the the um, basis of control. And um, so, you know, what we have, we had the first iteration uh, when I was a director of a bank um, in the form of Basel one, the first Basel regulations. Now, this refers to the regulations produced by the Basel Committee, which is under the aegis of the Bank of International Settlements. We then had Basel II, which uh, came in, I think, in the sort of early 2000s. And then um, in the wake of the Lehman crisis, we've had Basel III. And um, in theory, anyway, uh, they have improved and improved the regulation of the banking system. Uh, I say in theory because um, it really requires at the end of the day the interpretation of the Basel rules, one. And secondly, um, in terms of determining whether um, a banking system is safe, uh, what they now do is uh, individual central banks uh, uh, will set up um, uh, stress tests. Now, a very good friend of mine, um, uh, Professor Kevin Dowd, has criticized the uh, stress tests in the UK, um, clearly demonstrating that they don't uh, test the stress of the system at all. What they do is they produce answers which uh, are required at the end of the day to show that um, the regulator and the central bank um, uh, are doing their job and uh, the system is safe, when in fact it's not. <laughs> so, so that's what we've got. Um, Basel III, I think, really sort of hit the headlines um, not so long ago because it introduced the net stable funding uh, uh, requirement or ratio. And uh, the objective of that was to um, ensure that the basis of funding the assets on a bank's balance sheet were stable. Uh, and um, it's certainly done uh, quite a lot of improvements, but it hasn't actually addressed the complete issue. Uh, one issue which actually has been raised, and Claudio Borio, who is one of the senior 
um, uh, uh, people at the Bank of International Settlements has actually pointed this out separately. And that is that foreign exchange liabilities are not included on bank balance sheets. And in terms of dollars alone, amount to counterparty risks of over $80 trillion. And they should be on bank balance sheets, on the GSIBs anyway. And, um, you know, when you look at, uh, at, at problems of that magnitude, um, you know, this, this is horrendous. Uh, if the GSIB network uh, has a serious problem, then you can see that the, um, the amount of support that the central banks will have to give uh, for their commercial banking networks to survive is absolutely enormous because we're looking at derivatives, counterparty risks and derivatives, which are completely unacceptable, according to Claudio Borio. So, um, the, the, you know, the, the situation actually is a lot more dangerous uh, than, uh, you know, regulations would suggest. So this is, this is um, uh, you know, this is a situation. So w when we look at Credit Suisse, I mean, quite honestly, we're looking at the first domino to fall uh, in uh, the GSIB network. Uh, and if I look at um, some of the other banks, I mean, particularly in the in, in the Eurozone, I mean, the other GSIBs, I'll just run through the list. Group Credit Agricole, Deutsche Bank, Societe Generale, Ingroup, which is Holland, uh, Group B BPCE, which is actually unquoted, but that's a big French bank, Santander, and Unicredit, uh, and BNP Paribas. So yeah, that's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight uh, are in the Eurozone alone. And, uh, you know, when you look at the Eurozone and you look at the Euro system and you see target two imbalances uh, running at, um, well, Germany is owed, the Bundesbank is owed over 1.1 trillion euros uh, alone. Uh, you could see that, the, you know, there are all sorts of things which, um, you know, could come out of the woodwork if one of these banks gets into trouble. I mean, Deutsche Bank has really been walking wounded for the last, I don't know, 10 years. Um, and um, But the level of, 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 of leverage, balance sheet leverage in these banks is actually top of cycle and very high and very, very dangerous. Average asset to equity ratios in the region of just under 20 times, 20 times. And I, this, this brings another point, actually, about regulation. Regulation looks at... Uh, balance sheet risk, it looks at um, uh, uh, the funding of a balance sheet from, you know, the security, if you like, of funding from the uh, liability side. Uh, and uh, but it does not really seriously address the problem, which 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 is most important to a banker. And that is the relationship between the assets, uh, 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 the total assets and the shareholders equity, because if, let's say, you know, you're writing off, um, you know, a billion euros um, in, a, in a 20 times leveraged bank. The effect on the shareholders is 20 times what it is on the on, on the total balance sheet. I mean, you could very quickly write off, write completely the equity, the balance sheet equity in a bank. Now, uh, you can, you know, you can have a central bank with negative equity and nobody seems to mind. Uh, because they assume you, you know you just print money or whatever, whatever, and you can always get out of the problem. Um, separate issue, which we might, you, which you might like to um, take me up on. But when it comes to a commercial bank, if you wipe out the shareholders' equity, 
I'm sorry, you've got to close down. And this is essentially what happened to Credit Suisse because, you know, the depositors were basically running out the door and they hadn't got the resources to cover it. So, um, I mean, I, I calculated um, that the on, on, on this week's um, uh, numbers, figures, you know, markets and so on and so forth, uh, we're looking at something like $64 trillion equivalent being the total uh, balance sheets of all the GCIVs and um, uh, the equity uh, supporting that, shareholders' equity on the balance sheet is 1.44 trillion. That's all. So this gives us um, a ratio of assets to equity of around about 14 and a half times, something like that. Now, this doesn't include uh, allowances for the losses on uh, bonds, a la SVP, SVB, uh, and it doesn't include the um, uh, the liabilities, the credit liabilities that actually exist as a result of derivatives. Now, you can you you can can actually exclude uh, credit default swaps from this because uh, the uh, amounts, you know, the gross amounts are, are purely notional. That that never arises. But you know, when you when you uh, enter into um, a foreign exchange swap or um, forward commitment or or whatever, then you're liable for the whole lot, and that should be on your balance sheet. It's not. The way it is accounted is uh, you have the net difference, if you like, whether it's positive or negative, between two huge figures. Uh, applying to 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 the you know to your 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 balance sheet you should actually have the total amount and what we're looking at essentially if you take regulated futures and options uh one side of options the sole side of options which is almost exclusively in banks and uh, their subsidiaries hands Add to that the, um, uh, the foreign exchange obligations, the commodity obligations in the OTC markets. I reckon you're looking at in excess of a further 200 trillion of liabilities, which as Claudio Borio says, you know, should be on the balance sheets. And not only that, present an unacceptable level of counterparty risk uh, for, uh, for the banks. So this is, this is something which needs to continue to be watched. And I don't think we've seen the end of this at all. I mean, obviously, we'd like to the think on... Credit Suisse was a week back, and that's it. And that's now dealt with. And the authorities have learned a lesson, and they will ensure that no other bank gets into that position. That's rubbish. On the subject of uh, regulation, um, I, I, I always thought a, a real sort of insight into the nature of regulation was uh, when they had um, there was, a, there was a strange little political event in Scotland where um, a, a, an SNP-supporting member of the public won something like 16 million quid on the lottery. Alex Salmond was First Minister, and he invited them along to the government property Butte House for tea and bickies to <laughs> congratulate them on their good fortune. And... Um, the result of this chart was that they donated a million quid to the SNP. Now, some people objected <laughs> that this was using government facilities to fundraise for the SNP and was therefore corrupt. So 
In came the regulator, who happened to be former Airdrie Procurator Fiscal, Dame Elise Angelini. She's uh, now got a job in, I think, Oxford University. She was Lord Advocate at one point. So she was appointed by the First Minister, but entirely independent, you understand. And she came in to assess whether there had been any wrongdoing. And the report on this was a, was a piece of work because she went in and she asked the important question. She asked, who paid for the tea? And Salmon said, no, it's, it's my tea. It's, it's Scottish blend tea. Uh, and it's, it's from my flat. I, I provide that. Okay. And, and, she did, and, and, and what about the biscuits? Who paid for the biscuits? And, and Alex Salmon said, no, he paid for the biscuits. And everything was fine. Right? So she didn't question the people who had been potentially fleeced for a million quid. She didn't talk to them about what conversation had actually happened on government property, in government premises. No, she, she, she investigated the tea and the biscuits and they were fine, therefore we're good. And I, I always think that's, that's kind of what regulation does. It will look at the trivial and it will ignore the big issue, the elephant in the room. Um, I want to, we're probably slightly running out of time and we could probably talk all day. I want to dig down a little bit about why the underlying banking system is so unstable because we've got all of these people in well-paid jobs and central banks and Bank of International Settlements who are there to make sure the system is stable. And all we've had for the past two weeks is a series of crisis meetings at night and at the weekends to stop the whole thing collapsing. And it's easy to get lost in the weeds of exactly why it's unstable now. I'd like you to step back and just look at the basic principles about what what a banking what a sound banking system should look like compared to what what we have now and why there is such instability. Not in terms of they put interest rates up, they've killed the bond prices, all their assets are bonds, and therefore we have a solvency problem. But in terms of how banks operate, how money is created. Why is the system so potentially unstable? Why is it so prone to crashes? Well, how long have you got? <laughs> <laughs> um, I think, uh, where, where can I start with this? Uh, I mean, certainly, one um, solution which has been recommended and is, is, is favoured by a lot of Austrian economists is uh, banks of deposit. Now, under the way a bank of deposit works is that it acts as custodian for your money um, rather than the producer of credit and has a credit counterparty uh, relationship with you. Um, and uh, when it comes to um, businesses raising capital for you know, developing products or whatever it might be, um, Banks actually act as intermediaries, but they're as if you like effectively a Chinese wall between the two operations. Um, so you're going back really to separating out in, uh, investment banking from um, ordinary banking, but ordinary banking not creating credit out of thin air. Um, now that is really impractical. And I think it, 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 it rather misses the point. Um, the point is that credit actually existed before money did. I mean, the Phoenicians traded around the European and they even came to Cornwall. We've discovered that Tintandrel actually was all about exporting tin to the Phoenicians who would turn up for the stuff 
And we're talking about a thousand years before the first Roman coin appeared in roughly 449 um, BC. So, you know, this is, you know, credit in those days existed actually before money. Now, what do we mean by credit? What we mean by credit is that if, let's say, you, uh, you, you, you're going to sail off in order to get some goods, you know, tin from Cornwall or whatever, whatever, then it is more than likely that you wouldn't have the resources to fund that trip up front. So what you would have to do is you would have to go to various people and say, look, this is what I want to do. I'm going to go to, um, you know, Cornwall <laughs> or Tintandrel or whatever they called it, the Phoenician language in those days. And I'm going to pick up tin, which um, we know is extremely valuable, and it can be exchanged for this, that, and the other thing. I mean, we had sort of basically a barter economy in the, at those times. Um, but I need to be able to feed my crew. I need to be able to equip my ship. I need to be able to um, uh, have goods to exchange at the other end for my tin, you know, whether it's wine or whether it's uh, ewers or whatever it might be. Um, uh, so I need to be able to acquire that. And how do you do it? You do it with credit. That was the whole point. And even today, I mean, if you have uh, someone working on your house, David, um, that person will get, do the job first and then get paid at the end of it. What he is doing, what he is doing is he is uh, taking um, uh, your payment, if you like, uh, as, 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 as a credit um, which he will earn. And you will you will pass that credit over when it is discharged. And when you discharge it, you don't actually pay him in, in gold or silver or whatever. You pay him by transfer from your bank account or you pay him in pound notes from the Bank of Scotland, in your case, or the, or the Royal Bank of Scotland, uh, which are uh, no more than uh, a credit, if you like, issued by the relevant bank. So... Credit is actually the way in which all this works. The idea that you can just turn around and have banks of deposit, it actually doesn't work. I mean, it, the Bank of Amsterdam was a bank of deposit. Um, but the reason for that was that you had, and also Hamburg as well, you had coins coming in from all over Europe. A lot of them were clipped, uh, worn, whatever. Um, and so they were taken in by weight. Um, the uh, uh, mainly merchants uh, were credited um, in guilders or, uh, you know, whatever the currency was in, in, in Hamburg, I think it was crowns or something like that, um, uh, they were credited with that and they could withdraw it because it would be, you know, it would be produced for them and there was a cost of doing it. But it wasn't very long before the Bank of Amsterdam, for example, uh, moved away from that and started lending money to the government. Why? Because the government turns around and puts pressure on bankers to lend money to it. So, you know, this bank of deposit idea, which the Austrians are so keen on, actually, um, I, I, I view as impractical. Um, the real problem is the one which I think you have touched on by saying that, um, you know, you've got bureaucratic, um, state-driven regulation telling bankers how to behave. Whereas actually a credit arrangement is something that exists purely between a lender and a borrower. It is not something which a central bank or a regulator can actually intervene in. If they do intervene, and the thing that gives them the excuse to intervene is the government provides a license for someone to operate as a bank, then 
they corrupt the relationship between uh, the lender and the borrower. And uh, that actually works against the whole system. And what we have now is it's gone further than that, and that is monetary policy tries to drive uh, the relationship between lender and borrower uh, almost exclusively, cutting out the decision which should be just between the lender and the borrower. I mean, if you ask a bank, um, you know, who's your customer? Well, the answer is is the government regulator. You know, because computers say no. I, they, you know, that's the way. <laughs> that's the way. I'm afraid we have. That, that's that's. A, that's what we have become. We have become completely regulated, uh, and um, you know the the regulator is considerably more than more important than the customer. Now you can't get rid of a cycle of bank credit. Uh, you know, I'm sorry. All you can do is you can take steps to ameliorate it. And what I would recommend um, is uh, to put banks on exactly the same uh position as uh, we are as individuals i mean if you wanted uh, you know if you came to me with uh, an idea let's say to fund a um uh, you know a sort of a more important mises scotland uh, uh organization uh, and i had the ability to provide funds then that becomes a matter of credit and debt between us um and I, you know, you would have, uh, you know, um, if you like, uh, complete liability uh, for repaying that or uh, complying with the terms of it. Um, I think really that banks should not be able to hide behind limited, um, uh, uh, you know, if you like, limited liability. Uh, and if bankers and their shareholders as partners in a venture were totally um, uh, liable for uh, the consequences of their credit creation, then that would actually limit the credit creation of uh, the bank. You wouldn't get a situation whereby uh, a bank has 20 times uh, its, it, you know, its loans compared with its actual um, wealth in, in, in the business. It would be far less leveraged. It means that you're unlikely to get... Um, uh, destructive bank credit cycles. Now, I have to say that um, if you go all the way back, really, I suppose, sometime uh, after the goldsmiths uh, set up in, in banking and discovered the means of creating credit, uh, that um, those organizations did have a cycle of, if like, ups and downs of uh, the provision of credits. So, you know, they would they would be perhaps over-enthusiastic at the beginning of a cycle or towards the beginning of a cycle and certainly through the middle of a cycle, and then they would become cautious when uh, they see that uh, the arithmetic uh, for their customers uh, starts going awry. And under those circumstances, I mean, we can see that there have been various sorts of um, bank credit cycles um, and they roughly run every 10 years. Now, this one from Lehman crisis is already well overdue. I mean, we're, we're what, what, sort of 14, 15 years from the last crisis. So this one is very, very much overdue. The problem with bank regulation is that instead of uh, containing this situation, it actually exacerbates it. And that is what's happened. And it means that when the system falls over, which eventually it will, the situation is considerably more drastic than if we had 
as um, a system which government didn't didn't intervene in and uh, bankers learned every 10 years that they couldn't rely on being rescued by uh, government but you know their losses uh, from uh, exuberant lending would actually be um, fatal for them so you know we need to get back to that and uh, we're not going to get back to that with regulation we can only do it with free banking no regulators no salvation for the people who get into um, a, a credit and loan arrangement at their own will under a, their own will and then uh, find themselves in a position where they cannot discharge it so that's you know th that that i think is is where the problem is it's not the idea of fractional reserve banking which is commonly termed which actually is a misnomer it might help at this stage if i just describe a little bit how um, uh, bank credit is created. Um, if you come in, to, let's say I'm I'm in the business of banking and you are a customer and you come along with a proposition and I say, yeah, okay, I've looked at what you're saying and I think it makes sense. I'm prepared to um, make you a loan advance of a million pounds, okay? Um, and uh, what I will ask you to do is I will ask you to sign a loan agreement, a contract, which is fine. I mean, this is normal. It's got nothing to do with government at all. This is what happens. Now, um, the moment you have signed that, we have the, an agreement between us. We have a contract between us. And I will say to you, well, thank you very much, Mr. Scott. Um, the money is now in your account. Now, what's happened under double entry bookkeeping is I've credited the asset side of my balance sheet with the loan to you. But I must also, in order to balance my books, have, uh, if you like, an entry on the liability side. And that liability will match the loan that I've created for you. And that liability is, in effect, the cash which is in your account, which you can now draw down. Now, I might not present my accounts to you quite in that fashion, but that is the realist, that is the, re that is the situation. So what I have done, nothing, you know, nobody else has been involved in this at all, but just you and I. I have created the loan for you, and I have also created the matching deposit on the other side. Now, the reason I can do this is that I have got the credibility, first of all, with you as a customer, and secondly, with other banks, so that if, let us say, you pay some of that money away to someone who banks with another bank, then I can cover that position through um, the, you know, through the wholesale money markets. And it's, in essence, it's covering a net position. So that if you look at the whole banking system, it's just the creation of loans on the one side and the creation of credit on the other. And that's it. So this just comes out of thin air. And it's a point which pe very, very few people seem to understand. We covered this actually in the last week on the call and we looked at the Bank of England description of how money is created. Um, now, so what you've described is absolutely accurate, and that, that, is, that is the system. Um, is, is there an element, though, in that system that that provides the instability? Um, is it a fair criticism to say that, um, well, the, the banks are, the, the, the shorthand is that the banks are creating money out of thin air, imagining the money into existence or rather the currency into existence. Another way of looking at it perhaps more accurately is that it's, it's, it's 
generated by the loan agreement. So essentially, in that case, I would be borrowing it from myself. The bank's an intermediary taking a profit on the deal, but it, it's that it, it's not actually putting anything valuable up. It's not taking um, a reserve of um, of assets and actually loaning them to me. It's creating this um, loan agreement and credit on the opposite sides of the balance sheet. Is that would it be fair to would it be fair to criticise that as that's that's creating um, uh, that's creating credit based on nothing as opposed to credit based on savings? It is the is a fundamental problem with that. It's not linked to savings. It's linked to the debt agreement. It's linked to the loan agreement. It's linked to the security. So it's based on securities. It's not based on savings. Is is that a fair criticism of that system? No, I think it's an unfair criticism because um, that's not why it, it fails. It fails, I think, when uh, the lending gets excessive in relation to uh, the, the base. There is also the consideration that, of course, banks are um, effect essentially illiquid anyway because, uh, you know, if I lend money to you, uh, I probably lend it and I say, you know, I will review this at the end of a quarter or the end of a half year or whatever, or as the, I'm not going to, except for, um, uh, if you like, a sort of working overdraft, um, you know, which I could review at any time. I mean, if I'm actually making capital available to you, then uh, this is essentially something I can't get back at, a at the drop of a hat if the depositors run out of the door. Uh, the stability of the system basically depends on banks not doing this excessively. And the other aspect of it, which is very, very important, is that what we're looking at in, in terms of law is an incorporeal asset. Um, now, an incorporeal asset is, is, is credit or debt, something which uh, has no corpus, if you like, compared with a corporeal asset, which in uh, um, monetary and credit terms is only gold, physical gold, physical silver, normally in the form of coin. So um, the reason that you got expansion of credit not leading to uh, rising prices was because that credit was tied to, uh, to corporeal uh, money, which was gold. And so we saw, for example, uh, I can't remember the exact figures, but um, I, I did look at this a few months back. The expansion of credit from the, um, uh, the Bank Charter Act in 1844 up until uh, the end of the century uh, was something like 12 times, something like that. Yet the prices, uh, if you measured by the... Uh, you know, by wholesale prices, and of course, indexes going or indices going back that time are not necessarily reliable. But um, there is strong evidence to show that uh, basically prices did not move uh, in aggregate between uh, 1844 and uh, 1900. And not only that, but the cyclicality of it uh, diminished quite significantly, and it particularly diminished when the system became more and more efficient. I mean, for example, the Bank of England joined in the London Bank's clearing system in 1864, 
And uh, it was noticeable that after that, uh, the system became more efficient, um, prices stabilized even more. And now, whether it was coincidence or what, um, uh, you know, is something as a point which one could argue. But, um, you know, the evidence basically is that a proper banking system whereby banks can actually clear with each other, um, where they're free to make uh, loan agreements with, um, with their customers on terms that agreed only between them and their custom customers, it's absolutely fine. And I'll give you another example too. The Bank of Scotland is the oldest of the big banks in Scotland. And uh, when the Bank of Scotland uh, uh, commenced trading, its business basically was uh, dealing in bills. So what it would do is it would buy a bill and do and pay for that by creating credit on the other side of the balance sheet in the system which I've just really described. Uh, and um, uh, I mean, that was fine. But then uh, the Royal Bank of Scotland was founded. I think we're talking about um, 1720, something like that. It's around about then, that sort of time, 1720, 1730. Uh, and um, there wasn't enough business for two banks to do this, the, the, you know, this bill transaction. Um, so what uh, the Royal Bank of Scotland came up with was a system whereby an individual could open an account with a loan from the bank so long as uh, it had one or two um, people of standing uh, backing his application. And not only that, but these cautioners, as they were called in Scots banking law, um, had access to the individual's account with the, with the Royal Bank of Scotland and could um, cease the arrangement uh, at any time they wanted. So in other words, if things started going wrong, the cautioner would uh, effectively stop it. So um, this meant that credit was created for the first time. Uh, and it turned Scotland from basically, um, you know, a bunch of people who sort of uh, were clannish, um, raided other people's uh, uh, cattle, uh, and, uh, you know, it was purely agrarian with, uh, you know, the ownership of the lairds, you know, clan chiefs, whatever, whatever, um, uh, with everybody else um, not owning property, um, but living a subsistence life. Um, it, turned the it turned the economy from that into something which was quite remarkable. I mean, remember that uh, the Scottish Enlightenment was only 20, 30 years later. Remember that despite the Bonnie Prince Charlie episode, uh, when... <laughs> When Scotland sort of, came, you know, you had civil war effectively, um, it survived all that. And it became such a powerful, powerful member of, um, of, of the British Isles in terms of trade. I mean, look at Glasgow. You know, it, it, uh, it was um, tobacco, shipbuilding, the whole thing. I mean, it's just amazing, the productivity. And it all came out of credit. So credit is not quite the bad thing that um, you know, many people today would suggest. What I would say is where credit goes wrong is when government intervenes in a relationship which should be purely between a bank and its customer. And um, as far as the bank is concerned, the customer is king. That is the way it should be. The way it is at the moment is the regulator is king. And you and I as customers just, you know, uh, take the hindmost. And so this is that is really where the problem, I think, lies. So I'd say two things. You can't get 
um, rid of the cyclicality of bank credit entirely. What you can do probably is to um, encourage it to, to, to be ameliorated. And I think that my suggestion of uh, removing limited liability from a banker so that they're actually a banker is responsible for for uh, you know the, for the debts of his business, uh, I think is one way of doing it. Uh, but uh, I think the principal thing is that um, it should be completely free banking other than that, uh, and uh, regulation should come out of it completely. And then a bank's reputation will be its most valuable asset. And this is the point. Going back to your, your uh, description of a bank in Airdrie, um, you know, the bank in Airdrie uh, had that reputation. It fostered that reputation. When you went into the banking hall, you know, as a nipper, you thought, you looked at this place and you thought, you know, my goodness, this is a, this is a hallowed place. You know, it's security. It's everything. Yeah. It's everything that, that, that you would want. We've got to get back to that, uh, David. And um, we're not going to do it. We're not going to do it of our own volition. I mean, I think the whole system has got to uh, change. And the only way it will change, partly because of vested interests and partly because of lethargy, if you like, is, is um, the system has to be effectively fall over completely. And then we can start again. Phoenix rising from the ashes. We won't get it right, I'm afraid. So, uh, but you know, at least I know roughly which way we should be going. To finish the day, Alistair, um, your researcher for Gold Money, uh, an organisation that deals with uh, bullion, with um, that that, that um, takes people's uh, and safeguards people's uh, investments in, in 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 gold and silver, and does many other things in the precious metals market. So. Just to finish off, if you could outline how you see the, the role of precious metals in, uh, in banking and in trade and as a stabilizing influence in uh, international finance. Yeah, indeed. I mean, uh, the legal situation actually dates from Roman times. Um, it started off with, um, if you like, a sort of a loose formation of uh, Roman law uh, with the 12 tables, uh, and that was dated in uh 449 bc and that was when the first roman coins were issued uh, according to gaius who was a juror uh, uh some 700 years later uh, and um the it was a system whereby jurors basically uh and particularly two alpian and polus uh who who wrote a lot about um the relationship between money and credit and uh, the laws and so on and so forth that should pertain to it. Uh, without going into too much detail, uh, basically what's happened is that that was consolidated um, uh, in uh, Justinian's Pandex. Um, it was further amended in the Basilica, which um, was in the Eastern Roman, pro uh, um, Eastern Roman uh, uh, um, Empire. And... Um, the Western Empire continued with the Pandex, and basically we spread that around the world. I mean, you know, between Britain, Spain, Portugal, um, the Netherlands, uh, we really colonized the world and spread Roman law, which is the basis of um, the way we treat the relationship between money and credit. Corporeal money, which is, you know, gold coin, and the incorporeal, which is credit, the relationship between them. 
so that was spread all around the world and the, you know, the Americas and all the rest of it uh, work on exactly the same basis. Um, we forget it. We do forget this relationship, but it is desperately important because uh, credit exists in two forms today. We've got central bank credit, uh, which is banknotes, if you like, in, in public circulation. And uh, we also have um, commercial bank credit. Now, commercial bank credit takes its cue from central bank credit um, and central bank credit doesn't take its cue from anything. It's all based on, um, well, credit, credibility. It's all based on uh, faith, if you like, um, and the ranking of the issuer. So uh, the relationship as far as gold is concerned, if you look at what's happened since uh, credit was completely cast adrift from uh, uh, from physical metal, from coin, gold coin, uh, in 1971, we had, um, we've had, uh, I mean, it's evidence, the way we look at it uh, conventionally, and this is because we account this way, is that the gold price has risen from $35 to currently just under $2,000. Um, but actually, that's not the way to look at it. The way to look at it is that gold, its price just goes sideways like that. Roughly. I mean, it'll vary a bit here, yeah, obviously. But basically, um, over long periods of time, the, you know, the value of things expressed in, the, in, in gold, priced in gold, have been constant, relatively constant. But if you look at dollars, they've lost, since 1971, they have lost 98% of their purchasing power. Sterling has lost 99% of its purchasing power. Even the mighty yen, which we know is a strong currency, has lost something like 95% of its purchasing power. So uh, what we have is um, credit, which is just being cast adrift from gold. Now we're talking about a situation, we've been talking throughout this interview about a um, situation where this credit, the value of this credit, the purchasing power of this credit will be called into question by systemic failures. So what do you do? Um, we can also see that um, the response to systemic failures will be to try to prevent them. And that will be, mean expansion of credit at the central bank level, which will impact negatively on its purchasing power. So the currencies will fall in their purchasing power at an accelerated rate from now. Uh, so what do you do? Well, the answer basically is that if you think that this is a severe risk, then you have to get some of your uh, wealth out of uh, the dependency on this credit and get it into real money. And the reason real money doesn't circulate is because of Gresham's law. You know, the bad money drives out the good. In this case, we're talking about bad credit driving out the money. Uh, and uh, that is the service that gold money uh, provides. Uh, it provides the facility for people to store their physical gold, which they can buy and sell through through gold money, uh, in a number of vaults around the world, depending on where they would wish to store it. And the vaults are, uh, you know, fully LBMA compliant and um, fully insured and all the rest of it. So instead of having the risk of storing this stuff at your in your in your home, if you've got some significant quantities in order, if you like, in in, in today's credit measures, uh, then you can store it in somewhere safe, secure, 
and secure the future for your families and friends and all the rest of it who haven't done this. And this is the important thing because if uh, the value of credit collapses towards nothing, uh, then um, you know your friends, your family, your community is going to be very, very badly affected. And you know we all live in communities. We're, we're, you know, no man is an island, as John Donne famously said. Uh, and we've got to, re I, you, from my point of view, I think, um, you know, my community is extremely important to me. And, um, you know, I want to encourage them very hard to uh, uh, protect themselves. But a lot of people are not going to, I'm afraid. <coughs> so we don't necessarily help them with money, but we've got to be in a position, I think, to help help. And that that is the important thing. Well, thank you very much, Alistair, for your time today. I've taken too much of it, but uh, for that, I apologise. But hopefully we can we can do this again, uh, maybe immediately after the next part of the banking crisis. We'll have much more to talk about soon, I'm sure. And uh, you've, you've said a lot of things that are really interesting. You've, you've uh, uh, outlined um, some of the history of, um, of, of free banking and the, the nature of credit, and that's been very useful. And also... Um, basically got to the core that we are in a situation where we have a faith-based financial system and faith is being lost and it's going to be a very bumpy ride. Uh, so for all of that, thank you very much. Until next time, Alistair McLeod, thank you.